Y'all turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. This morning we're going to be in verse 5 through the end of the chapter, verse 15. Before we read that together, I want us to pray. Before we get started for our hearts and pray for another church in town and their pastor. So uh, as we pray for all men, would you pray with me as, uh, as I lead us? Father, it's our request this morning that all men come to know the truth all around us and globally where you've given us a footprint and we are especially lifting up this morning Faith Bible Church and Caddo Mills and Randall Bost, their pastor, that you would preach the gospel through him, that those people would be uh, savoring and enjoying Christ this morning in their worship. And that you would do the same here among us. And God, we pray for the leaders of our communities. There's many communities represented here this morning, along with Greenville. And we're praying this morning. Our hearts are burdened for the men who lead and the women who lead in the cities. And we're praying that you would make it such that the civil environment is peaceful and quiet so the gospel goes forward. And we pray for the men that are in this room, in this body who lead in their respective cities, that you would protect their families, that you'd give them wisdom and insight, and you'd give them faith and trust in you. We're anxious to hear from you this morning, and I pray that Jesus is exalted and that we rest again in him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We are in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And um, last week we covered these first four verses where we're encouraged to pray first. That's our first move. And our heart for people who are outside this fellowship, our first move is praying. We pray for all men because God's desire is that all men come to knowledge of the truth. And so that's our move is prayer. And... Then Paul moves into giving us what we're to hold out to men. And that's where we're going today. What do we hold out to all men? What is the heart of the gospel? What are we holding out to men? And then he tells us, this is how you hold it out to men. So that's, that's where we're going today. This is what you're to hold out to all men. You're praying first. You're praying for all men. You're praying that the gospel will go forth in a peaceful and quiet environment. That you will be a godly and dignified people and earn the respect and the gospel will not be reviled, it will not be impeded, it will go forward. It will go out to men so that they will come to the knowledge of the truth. They will come to Jesus. So here's what he's saying. You hold out, and he's saying, here's how you do it. Look, look with me at verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 
For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, back to verse 5. This is what we are to hold out to all men. And then we'll look at how we do that. Some very tricky verses that we just read. Um, It's the elephant in the room, if there is one. Uh, I feel like I'm holding a grenade this morning, and I'm trying to get the pin back in. (laughs) So we're going to carefully, hopefully rightly explain these. But let's look first at what we're to hold out. Verse 5, for there is one God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This can be particularly offensive, and it was in Ephesus, but it can be particularly offensive here, especially here in this Christian subculture where we live that's saturated with something called moralistic therapeutic deism. Let me explain that again. We've mentioned that a few times in the past. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. A view of God whereby he is particularly or primarily bent towards us in love. Primarily, he moves towards us with love. So, if we can pretty much be good boys and girls, he'll be satisfied. Primarily, he moves towards us in love. And so if we can, in general, be good, and the good outweighs the bad, we're good. And it's therapeutic in that Jesus is the greatest therapist ever. When you have trouble, he'll come, he'll sweep in and fix it. He can be the best friend you'll ever have. That Jesus is more of therapy than he is Savior. He'll come alongside you and your program. He'll come alongside you and your goodness program. And he'll help you satisfy God. And if you think that's not the case, ask anybody. If you think it's not offensive to say, only Jesus, only Jesus is Savior. And in fact, God's wrath is what is bent towards us, directed at us first. And that we need Jesus to absorb that wrath. We need him to save us. You think that's not offensive here? Ask anybody in Hunt County right now. Why will you make it? To heaven. And for the most part, I think you'll get an answer like this. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I haven't murdered anybody. Um, I've, I've learned to let the good outweigh the bad. I know that God's love is directed at me generally. And that if I'm a pretty good person, 
He'll have mercy and let me in. That thought prevails all around us. And so it can be particularly offensive to say, no, that's wrong. It can be particularly offensive to say, no, God's wrath is directed at all men. His wrath is directed at all men. It's not love directed at all men. He loves us in that Christ died for us. And so you will remember, it's, it's very easy, I think, for us to say, well, yeah, we know that. But it was just John ushering us into Romans a few short years ago where this landed with us. So let's don't get on our high horse with this truth, okay? And remember, too, that we easily forget this. I need this every week. I need this truth, this reminder. There's one mediator. Brad is not a savior. And my ability to keep good outweighing the bad gives me no hope. I need that reminder every week. Remember Romans. Romans 1 through 4 unpacks this. Okay? Romans 1 through through 4 shows us that God's wrath is pointed at us and that he loves us in that he provided Jesus to absorb his wrath. We were saved from God. We were saved by God. Now turn in Romans 5. Turn to Romans 5. We're going to read just a few verses here. Because this is what we hold out to people. As we're praying for all men, what do we hold out? We hold out one mediator. There's one option. Only one option. This is distinctive, it's exclusive, and it's premier. <laughs> That's our gospel. Romans chapter 5, look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one might, one would dare even to die. But God, listen, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see what's happening? We are ungodly, and his love towards us is in Jesus, not in who we've become or who we are as sinners. While we were still sinners, still with the target on our back and his wrath coming, Jesus stepped in. That's love. And so we have one option for safety, one option for salvation, and that's Jesus. There's only one. One option. There's one way, one truth, and one life, and that's only found in Jesus. That's got to be the message that we hold out. And remember, it's not always going to fit in our culture, and it doesn't here either. It doesn't fit. It's not savory to most people to hear that there's only one option in Jesus, and there's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus, wholly and completely. It's difficult, it's exclusive. It's premier. There's one option. Now, secondly, we have to know that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, he is saying there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is also the designer. This, this mediator option, this redeemer that we have, is also the designer of how we hold it out. He tells us, 
This is what you hold out to all men. And then he shows us this is how you do that. This is the posture and the position and the roles that you play as you hold this out. And they're important. And you need to get them right. Because he's the designer as well. He goes on to say, you remember when we read it just now, men lead out in prayer, teaching and governing. Women, there's this posture of quiet, faithful, loving, helpmate, controlled spirit. Some of the way Paul says that, says that we don't like it. And we're going to look in just a minute to see what he means by that because the Bible doesn't uh, mean what it says. It means what it means. So we got to dig in and find out what it means and what he means there. If this sounds unsavory to you, those verses that we read a while ago about men leading Women, quiet, submissive. It's all those words, you don't like those. You, you're probably in some pretty good company there, first of all. Secondly, we have to unpack what it means, and we have to do this. Before we go to these, you have to understand that if you're taking him, receiving him, and trusting him as your redeemer, as the one only option you have for reconciliation with God, and yet you say, I don't really like how you want this held out. I, don't, I really don't like how you want this lived out. What we are saying is, I trust you and your sufficiency to save, but I do not trust you and your sufficiency to design. I don't trust you as one sufficient and powerful enough, smart enough to figure out how this can go forward, and that's arrogance on our part. So just before we go to these passages, understand if you're saying, I'm not going there with Paul, I don't agree with anything Brad just read. Wait a minute, wait. If he's mediator, remember, he's also the designer. I asked an engineer around here, not naming names. There's a lot of engineers. You think, think of any position you've been in where you had a plan and you implemented that plan with tools, people, timing, schedule, those of you that contract, those of anybody, you've made a plan, you've designed a plan, you've designed an order. And what happens when people, you take it to people who are to implement this plan, and when they don't like it, what do they do? They immediately say, well, this, this is designed wrong. That, there's something wrong with the design. If you've ever bought Ikea furniture, you know what I'm talking about. Well, this wasn't designed wrong. Have you read the instructions? Well, no, but it's designed wrong. Well, read the instructions. And nine times out of ten, we started down the wrong trail. This is what the engineer said as I asked about design and what happens when people question the design. I got this great answer. Listen to this quote. I had him type it out for me. Just as I might design something here with an intended purpose in mind, the design would be based on my knowledge and my expectation would certainly be that whoever builds this and implements it would follow my instructions. Okay? Let me, let me say that again. If I design something with an intended purpose in mind, that design would be based on my knowledge and my expectation that anybody that implemented it or built it would certainly Follow my instructions. Now listen to this. Any change or modification to the design would cause it to be altered. And it would no longer be my design. And you could no longer count on it producing its intended 
purpose. When we alter, when we modify, I don't like, that doesn't like, that doesn't sound good, doesn't taste good, it's not savory, I think I've got a better plan. I think I've got a better design. This is how the gospel will go forth a little better. I'm very creative. He gave me creative gifts. I know how to get this gospel to all people. I've seen this work over there or over here. So I don't like this plan. Let's, let's come up with a better one. And you're saying that to the one that's mediated and absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf when you say that. So let's, let's slow down and back up and consider his design. And we must trust his design, however unlikely. We must trust it. What is this intended purpose? What's the intended purpose? We learn that in verse 1, that all men would come to the knowledge of the truth, that the gospel would not be slowed down. That's how we pray. And this is held out in such a way and by such a design so that the gospel is not impeded and so that this one option, one sometimes offensive option is held out to all men. The gospel is preserved and it keeps moving out to all men. That's the intended purpose, that it's not reviled, that it's received, and that it goes out and God builds his people. That's the intended purpose of his design and telling us how we hold this gospel out. That's the intended purpose with those verses we read that very few of us like. That's it. The intended purpose is that this gospel goes out to all men. And that divisiveness is kept at bay. Think about chapter 1 in 1 Timothy when you get these false teachers out. If they're not preaching Jesus, don't let them preach. If they're going on and on and trying to be impressive, don't let them teach again. In fact, remove them, praying that they'll come back, praying that they'll be restored, but do not have anything to do with them. There's a a defense of the purity if we move in his design. Who are we to say that we're godly We're devoted and we're devout and we're committed to Jesus. But I don't like his design. Who are we? Remember Hebrews chapter 1. You can turn there if you want. But listen, Hebrews chapter 1. We've just been there. Most of us are, many of the kids are memorizing it. I don't know how well the adults are keeping up. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by Jesus, by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When we say we don't like God's design and we won't consider it and we won't trust it, we are saying that to the heir of all things, exact imprints of the radiance of glory of God, imprint of his nature, and the one upholding the universe. And we won't consider his design. That's what we're saying. Now, It's, it's important for us to remember where Paul is here. He is in a culture, and his instructions here for men and for women is in the face of a culture that is operating in direct opposition to this design. 
So what Paul is instructing men and women to do here is to assume a posture in how they move with this gospel, and it's in opposition to how the culture moves as men and women. Does that make sense? So he's encouraging them to move as men and move as women, and that's not how men and women are moving and interacting with each other and teaching and preaching, and it's infected the church. The culture has, culture has infected the church. The church is not infecting the culture, and so therefore the gospel's being reviled and it's being impeded. So remember, this is his design. These statements by Paul are not about value. Now listen very carefully. These statements about men and about women are not about their value individually, It's not about their significance one over the other. They're about design and order. They're about posture, position. This is how you posture yourself. Let me say it one more time. These are not about value one over the other. They're not about significance one over the other. Men over women, women over men. They're about this is how men, you are to posture yourself. This is your role Women, this is how you're to posture yourself. This is your role. The gospel will then not be reviled and it will go forth if you move in this way. Now, turn to verse 8. Verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I desire then that in every place, what Paul is saying here is that anytime you gather, anytime men in the church and there's women and they're moving, men in every place should, key word, should pray. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Men should do this. Men don't always do this. That's a, it's a key. That's where we're going to go in a minute. We'll follow up with that. Men should pray. Lifting Holy hands. They should lead out in prayer, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The descriptions here are more about posture than specific literal instruction. Here's what I mean by that. It doesn't cease to be prayer or a valid prayer if I'm not holding my hands up. You see what I mean by Paul saying this is about your posture. This is how you think. This is how you're moving. It's, it doesn't cease to be prayer if I accidentally, oh, I forgot to do this. Should we start over? Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? We're not going totally literal here. There's a lot of figurative speech here that Paul is using that we'll see in a minute. But what's not figurative, men should lead out in praying. Men should lead out in praying, teaching, and governing. Men should do that. They don't always, but men should lead out in this. This lifting holy hands... It sounds like where we've been on Wednesday nights in Exodus 17, where Moses stands on the hill with hands lifted. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. God's design for him moving his people forward. Moses is standing on the hill before the Amalekites. Verse 8, Exodus 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur 
went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other side. And so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people. Men, holy hands lifted. There's no weapon. This is my posture. No weapon. I'm yielding. I'm yielded here in this position. I'm not fighting. I'm not quarreling. I'm not defending. I'm yielded to God in this position. I'm vulnerable in this position. And this is God's design for the man. To yield to him, to pray, stay vulnerable, ready to defend. But right here, it's unlikely. It's a little weird. It's a little odd. It looks insignificant. Moses, stay right here. Oh, I'm getting tired. Oh, they're losing. No, I told you. I want this right here. And look at verse 15. After they've been given victory, Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Basically, God got the glory for the battle. Why? Right here. Moses filled his role, was obedient to God's design to do something that was seemingly odd, seemingly insignificant, but he was obedient to the role God gave him. Lifted. His posture was open-handed. His posture was lifted to the Lord. Lifting holy hands. Think about Jericho. Priests. Move around the city. Make sounds. Make music. Pray. You go around. And in Jericho Falls, men are put in this position of yielding to the Lord. Not anger. Not quarreling, not fighting, but yielding to the Lord, praying and singing, making sounds, the walls fall. Who gets the glory in that? God does. Time and time and time again, men lifting holy hands and praying, God wins the battle. God takes the victory. The gospel moves forward when men are in this position. Now, what does this mean for us? It means that we don't run off to Montana and stockpile weapons in order to defend our faith. And that sounds extreme. You know that happens. You've seen it on the news. But we don't need men to stockpile weapons in order to defend our rights as believers here or anywhere. Let's just bring it on down a little bit. It also means for us men that we don't gather as many apologetics books as we can to defend the faith, to build a case so that we can be right when we argue with people at work about Jesus. Now, don't burn your apologetics books. I'm not saying that. They're good. It's good to be ready, 1 Peter 3, to give a defense of the faith and the hope that's within you with gentleness and respect. Ready to give a defense. I just wonder, if this is not our position, the gospel doesn't need us in this position, and the gospel doesn't need us in this position, right? The gospel needs us here. Praying that this gospel would go forth. That's our first move. Not this, or this, or that. <laughs> Whatever you're thinking. That's not, what, that's not the position we're called to. Man, we're called to this position right here. Pray. Pray 
pray that this gospel would go forth. Teach and preach one option. Govern the people with one option and prayer. Jesus and prayer. That's how you pray, that's how you govern, and that's how you teach the people. And that's your posture. I just wonder, if we spent a minute in prayer for every dollar that we spent on apologetics books, if we might not see a different result if we started here instead of building a case to be right. If we start here, praying for all men before we move to people who have attacked our faith on the work site or treated us bad because of our faith and how that plays out in our life. Right here, pray first. Holy hands, without quarreling, without anger, without being combative with these doctrines that you learned in here, without being combative with the truth that you have. Pray then move out with the gospel. Pray with holy hands lifted. This is your posture, not this. Peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified. Remember that? First part of chapter 2. What are we praying for? That this gospel would move out in a civil environment that's peaceful and quiet. Here's what I hear Paul saying. Men, power, power will be found in God's order and his design. This may not feel right. You may feel like you're pretty good at this. You're pretty good at this. Or you got the books. You read them. You know it. You know what to say. I can hammer this dude. I can hammer that guy. Power will be found. Ladies, power will be found in God's design when men are leading out in prayer and teaching and governing like this. Like this. That's where power is found. The gospel will move out. Now, verse 9. 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. Okay, grenade in hand. I got the pen. We're going to get this thing, hopefully, without anybody getting hurt. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. There's two things here for the ladies. The first one, dress with modesty, respectable, and under self-control. Remember the culture. And in Ephesus, a lot like today, in Ephesus, a woman who dressed like she had money got her influence and gave her a voice and a status. She was Powerful. When she dressed like she had money, or if she had money, you didn't necessarily have to have money. If you dress like you have money, you get this power and this influence over people in the community. It would be like, let's, let's listen to Miss So-and-so. She's got great status in this community. Think of how the gospel would go forward if she was the one speaking if she was the one praying, if she was the one leading out. And Paul says, no. (laughs) Here's what Paul would say. Power is not found in your ability to impress or gain status or gain a voice or gain influence with your dress. Listen, this 
This is less about your individual morality. When he says modest, it's less about that, and it's more about the gospel does not need you to dress in such a way where you gain influence, to be relevant, to, to come with this, this dress and this garb and my hair done just right to where people will listen to me. And Paul says, no, the gospel doesn't need that. For you to get this identity that makes you relevant so people will listen to the gospel. Ladies, that's not needed. And he's not saying that women ought to wear hand-stitched denim dresses and khaki clogs either. Because this is not about morality. Your individual dressing like you're a good girl either. But the intent here is what is your motive? What is your motive in how you dress? Is it that how you dress will gain some sort of voice and influence so that the gospel will go forward? Unnecessary. Are you dressing in such a way where people will see that you are faithful, loving, and under self-control? How he ends the chapter. That's the first thing. The gospel will be preserved. Listen, this may sound like really nitpicky instruction, and it, and it, but listen, this is his design. This is his order. This is how the gospel will be preserved if we pay attention to these things. The gospel will be preserved. Men leading, holy hands lifted. Move out by God's design. Ladies, if, we're, if you're thinking less about attention to yourselves and how you dress and, and trying to gain influence and identity and relevance, but thinking more about being devoted and dignified. Composure and devout and devoted to God and his design, devoted and dignified in following the men who are praying and teaching. That will help the gospel move forward. That will preserve this gospel in this culture. You see it? That's what Paul's talking about. How are we going to preserve this gospel in this culture? Ladies, follow the men who are praying and teaching. Has very little to do with the influence you gain by your status. Remember, these descriptions are more about posture than specific literal instruction. We must be careful with them. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Wow. <laughs> learn quietly with all submissiveness. This is what he's talking about here. Remember where he just came from in verse 9 and verse 8. Learn quietly and with all submissiveness in the direction of the men who are praying and teaching and preaching. Learn from them. Listen to them. This be quiet that you're hearing from Paul is not you get to that door, you get your talking over with in the parking lot. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is, listen, that, that's what you may hear, but that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying when you move in here, this is where men talk. Not what Paul's saying. Because we're going to look at some other scriptures that, that would be contradictory to what Paul says in other places. Think about when you're on a road trip, dads, moms, and the kids are vying for your attention, and what you're trying to do is keep it in the middle of the road. And what do we say to our kids? Be quiet. 
Just, can I please focus on driving for a minute? You are not saying to your kids, don't you ever say another word in this car, offer suggestions or ask questions or have to go to the bathroom. That's not, that's not what you're meaning. That's not what you're implying to your children. You're saying, can, you, can your posture be quieter? <laughs> you're not saying, zip it. Well, maybe. <laughs> With the kids. Uh, but think about posture. Think about what Paul's intention is here. Think about, follow these men who are praying and teaching. Follow them. Now remember, men should do this and they don't always. We're going there in a minute. Men should do this and they don't always. But if there are men doing this, and even if they're not doing a good job of it, you also come in, <laughs> ladies, so get ready. It sounds like Ephesians 5 where men love and men love like Christ where they lay down their life for their wife and she follows that love and that leadership. And he says in chapter 5 of Ephesians, this is Christ and the church. This is the gospel on display. And this gospel will not be reviled. If there are men praying, men teaching and leading and loving and dying. And there's women who are learning and moving in that. Not using their status or their dress or their positions to gain some influence for the gospel's sake. No, follow the guys Submit to them, the ones that are praying and teaching. That's key. The ones that are praying and teaching and preaching. Paul surely doesn't mean that women are never to speak up, never say anything, that they only have things to learn. This is about posture. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Verse 1 through 5. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. How does the gospel go forward? Women are teaching. <clears throat> They're speaking up and teaching other ladies. And ladies are teaching and pushing and admonishing even men that we'll see in a minute. Paul's not saying be completely quiet. Ladies, the gospel will go forward and it will not be reviled if you are engaging one another. I'm seeing this in, our own, in my own life, in my own marriage. I'm seeing it all across our body. Ladies, when you engage each other, the gospel is not reviled. The gospel is not reviled. When you are teaching one another, pushing and praying and discipling, and holding one another accountable in this gospel, it's not reviled. When he says here, work at home, he doesn't mean 
literally everybody has to just clean house all the time or only work at home. He says they ought to be busy and attentive to home. That's what he means here. Busy at home and attentive at home. Pay attention to the household. So he's not saying you have to work at home, be quiet at church, never say anything that's not where he's going. You have to let Titus inform Timothy. And he's saying, ladies, you ought to be teaching. You ought to be praying. You ought to be discipling. You ought to be engaging one another. And when you do, the gospel goes forward. You want to press into the power of the gospel? You want to see it powerfully move forward into this culture that we live in? Ladies, engage one another. Disciple, pray, and teach how to love husbands and children. Teach each other how to teach your children. Significant role. Powerful role. And that will push this gospel into the culture, and he will get the glory. It's his design. It's his power. Men don't always lead out in all this. I just think to myself, how many churches have I seen over the years where men weren't leading in prayer and teaching and weren't protecting with sound doctrine and weren't preaching Jesus as the only option and who were influenced by other men in the community and weren't tending to the garden of their church, weren't tending to the hearts of the ladies. They weren't watching, overseeing, Guarding, protecting, preaching, teaching, and praying. And I just think about how many of those ladies' prayer groups has sustained those churches. How many of those unheralded, nobody gave them a plaque or a badge, nobody knew they were there. And the life of that church is sustained and the gospel continues to go forward because there's ladies praying. When guys are not doing what they're supposed to do. They should pray with hands lifted. They should teach and preach. They should. But they don't always. Turn to Judges chapter 4. I love this story. Judges chapter 4. We're going to look at a lady named Deborah. Some of you may have heard this story before or heard some of us mention Deborah. She is a judge. Of the people, they would come to her with disputes and she would help them sort it out. Barak or Barak is the name of the guy who should be leading the people. Should be leading the people. Barak should be leading the people. Should. And Deborah comes to him because he's not. Barak is not doing what he should be. He's a man who has positioned himself pretty cowardly. And listen to how she does this. Listen, we're going to watch and see how two women are an integral part of God moving and receiving victory with a pretty, weak-willed, faithless guy. But in God's design, they stay in God's design, they submit to him, and they follow him, and God gets the victory. Verse 6, Judges chapter 4, verse 6. She, Deborah, sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you in the river Kishon, and his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand? 
I love this. Hey, Barack, aren't you supposed to be leading? Who brought that to his attention? The lady did. Barack, didn't God say she's reminding him of what God says? Aren't you supposed to be? She didn't say, hey, everybody, he's a chump. He's not doing what God said. I tell you what, follow me. I heard what God said, and I can do it. No, where'd she go? She went to him, and she said, aren't you supposed to be doing something here? Didn't God say? She asks. That's submissive. She's pushing him. This poor guy, (laughs) he is a chump so far. He's faithless so far. And she says, aren't you supposed to be leading us? Barak said to her, he doesn't help it things out here. If you will go with me, I will go. But if you won't go, I will not go. And she said, surely I'll go with you. So here he is. He's not doing what he's supposed to do, what God said to do. He's not leading in the manner that God said. And A lady says, aren't you supposed to be leading? Do you not remember what God said? She's reminding him, and he says, okay, but will you go with me? Now, that's beautiful and tragic at the same time. He recognizes that Deborah is significant. He recognizes and respects her voice in this and says, come alongside me. And yet at the same time, we all wish he would just Stand up and lead. <laughs> lead out. So look at verse 14. Listen to how she keeps talking to him. And Deborah said to Bar- Barak, Up! <laughs> For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? She's, I don't know what he's doing here, but hey, Let's go. Who's having to tell Barak that? The lady. Go. Get up and go lead. Today is the day. And she even asked it in the question. Isn't this the day? Submissively saying, isn't, remember what he said? She's pushing him. Submissive and following him. Reminding him. Asking him, aren't you supposed to be? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak and the edge of the sword. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot, and Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left except Sisera, who's still running. Okay, enter the second lady that God uses in this battle. Look at verse 21. This guy Sisera that Barak's chasing, that God says, I'm going to give him into your hand, and he'll die by the, by the work of a woman, and enter Jael. And he's running, and Barak's chasing him, and Sisera comes in 
to JL's tent. And he says, I need a drink. I need to rest. She says, here you go. JL knows what's going on. And she assists Barak in this way. She says to Sisera, come lay down. I'll cover you up. She covers him up. She gives him some milk to drink. And she lets him drift off to sleep. Verse 21, but Jael took the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand. She went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Later, Barak comes up and she says, the guy you're looking for is in my tent. Neither one of these ladies ran in front of him, ran in front of Barak. Neither one of them chumped him. Neither one of them stepped out in front. They came alongside and they pushed him. Chapter 5 is the song that they sing together. Barak and Deborah is this song that they sing and it's it's just all about God and how great he is. And they were counting all these. They, they, they sing a song about God and how faithful and great. Look at verse 12 of chapter 5 there. Here, this part of this song cracks me up. Verse 12. They're singing about God and it's Barak turns to Deborah to sing something. And then she turns back to him to sing something. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake. Break out in song. It's almost like Barak says, we won, Deborah, we won. Keep singing, we won. She says back, arise, Barak, lead away your captives. We won, Deborah, we won. I know, lead. Lead us. I know we won. Lead. (laughs) Do you see how she is? pushing and supporting and submitting and listening to God and it's proper and it's good. Paul's instruction in the direction of God's design and these posture of the roles of men and women are not about individual value or significance. It's his design that the gospel go forth and he gets the glory in the design. He always will get his glory and this gospel will not be impeded and he will get the victory. Men, if we're leading in prayer, teaching, governing, guarding, protecting. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at one more thing. Verse 13. Paul makes this statement about Adam and Eve, which reminds us again that Jesus was there when this all started. He was, all things were created through him and by him and for him. So he was here when the design started, when this whole thing was created. So he is the designer that can be trusted. But I want to look at verse 13 because we can read this at first glance like these other verses and think that Paul's meaning something that he isn't. So let's be careful with it. Verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. Paul is not putting the fall of man completely on Eve. Because she messed all this up for us, she's got to go over and be quiet. 
That is not what Paul is saying. That is not what he is saying here. He's saying it's his design and the gospel goes forth and he'll get the glory when she is submissive, when she is quiet, but when she is also pushing and praying. You see, why, this, why he's not saying this is all Eve's fault is in chapter 2, right before Genesis 3 where the fall happens, right before that, God charged Adam with this, keep the garden. Keep the garden. Tend to it. Protect it. Guard it. And then he gave him this beautiful helpmate out of his rib. He forms a perfect helpmate for him. And Adam was not tending and guarding her and protecting her because along comes the enemy and he attacks her. It's as much on Adam as it is Eve because he was not keeping the garden when the enemy came. He wasn't attentive, praying, teaching, leading, and the enemy came. So men, holy hands, pray first. Lead, pray, teach. That's our position. And the gospel will go forth. The enemy will be kept at bay when we pray, protect, lead, and guard the garden that he's given us. It's an unlikely, it's a unique, it's a counter-cultural design. But our mediator was there when this was started and it designed and he is our salvation and he is the designer. And he says this is how this one way is to be held out to all men. When we don't trust and operate in his design, we will alter the desired intent and purposes. And typically what we'll do when we alter this design and this gets out of whack is we'll end up robbing the glory. We'll, we'll end up a people who take the glory because we've designed this in such a way where, where we get a pat on the back for what we see God doing. When we don't trust and operate in his design, we alter the desired intent and purpose, and that's that the gospel would go out to all men, that all men would come to the knowledge of the truth, and this is how that's done. Men lead, protect, guard, preach, teach Jesus one way. Ladies, Come alongside. Pray first, men. Remember what Deborah said. I know. Lead. Women, hold us to that. Hold us to that. Pray for us. Men, love and lead like Christ loves the church. Ladies, Follow us like we follow him. And the gospel will go out to the nations. Unlikely, kind of odd, countercultural. Men, lead like Jesus laid down his life. Women, follow us. Knuckleheads, follow us. And remind us to lead. And the gospel will not be reviled. Let's pray.
Father, I want to pray again for our community and our culture that we are in that is not necessarily um, ready to hear you as propitiation, as reconciler and redeemer only. And I pray that we would hold out one option to people, one mediator, one God, and that the men in here would lead out in prayer to that end. And that we would teach that and protect and tend and garden around us. God, I want to pray today that the ladies would push us to this, remind us of this, and follow us in this one option. One mediator. Father, I'm especially burdened for ladies who are functionally the spiritual leader at home that you would keep us attentive to tending and protecting and shepherding their families as elders, that they would be reminded to continue to lean on and follow the men here in this church for their protection, for the protection of their family, and so that the gospel goes forward, that they would trust that as hard as it may be. God, I'm thankful for your design. I'm thankful for your grace when I don't lead well. I'm thankful for ladies who are faithful and loving and controlled and composed and dignified who pray even when we don't. I'm grateful for your design, God, and I pray that we would be faithful to you and to your design so that the gospel would go out to all men and that they would come to the knowledge of the truth in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Glad that you um, prayed for spiritually single moms or single moms. Christy leaned over to me uh, just as Brad began to pray and, and suggested, or not suggested, asked me if I was going to say something to single moms, and Brad prayed for them, a burden for you. Single moms and spiritually single moms, um, this sermon this morning is about how the church is to operate. The hard part is sometimes a church can be like a home that has a spiritually single mom or a mother shepherding the family. Um, And just as moms, you're doing it, churches can do it with ladies standing in the gap and um, doing and leading and serving where men aren't. But God's best seems to be for the church for men to be leading. Uh, Brad said this in the sermon. He kind of likened it to a grenade with a pin. I feel like the pin was put back in, but um, I know my own context, and I, I'm, I can't presume to know everybody's. So I encourage you, families, um, ladies, men in some cases, if something about this design is offensive to you, then talk through it. it I, I know Brad would not be offended by someone following up with him after this sermon saying, hey, I need to talk some more about that. I have some questions and are some concerns. The hard part is if it's, this seems like a one-way conversation. In a lot of ways, it is. But the conversation, the real part of the dialogue begins at the end of the day as we dismiss. And it's discussed Preacher to shepherd, small group leader to small group member, husband to wife, family or parents to children. 
it's supposed to be processed. So it, it's not offensive to be questioned on. I have some questions about this. How does it, what about this? What about that? In fact, it's helpful. I think it, uh, it finds purchase that way. So I encourage you to do that. Uh, this morning, our next, we're going to have our Lord's Supper. I want to share a passage with you from Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered a city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room and where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I thought this morning would be an appropriate time for us to be very specific about giving thanks for this building and what's happened in this room. This is the last time that we gather in here. Um, I think we have maybe in church history or recent church, well, not even in recent church history, but in ancient even church history, if you see the the, uh, the very elaborate facilities that are built in Europe and church buildings, these the Dom and Cologne, places like that, that we can overemphasize um, the building. And something the Lord has done with us in the last eight years is he has de-emphasized the building for us, sort of developing this reality that the church is not a building. It's not. The church is the people of God, and the church travels. We're about to leave. And when we leave, the church mobilizes and moves into Monday and this building still sits here. We call it, our family calls it the church building on purpose. We don't go to church. We are the church. So we are trying zealously to de-emphasize the church as a building. When you emphasize it, it becomes a place that you go, and it becomes contained not only geographically, in our case to the south side of town, but chronologically to Sundays and, Monday, or Sundays and Wednesdays. The church is a people, but yet the Lord gave us this facility. Very few church plants start with a facility in hand. And as, we, as I look back at eight years of this facility, I am thankful for shelter. I'm thankful for a roof over our head with ugly dated fans, but fans nonetheless. Fans that ironically we needed often. I'm thankful that air con- for air conditioning that usually worked. I'm thankful for heat that always works. 
I'm thankful for a place to sit, albeit straight, linear, long, 14-foot, 4-inch pews that I'll make a comment about later. I'm thankful for lighting. I'm thankful that in eight years of preaching that you've been able to see or I've been able to see the preacher's face. I like to see somebody's face as they speak. Small things. God provided that. I'm thankful for the lighting that you had as you looked down on your Bibles and read the text as we climbed through it. I'm thankful for a pulpit. This was the second pulpit of four. The first one is in the storage facility over there, and it is a monster. It covers this entire front area. I preached from it the first Sunday I came here preaching in view of a call, and that was the last Sunday I preached from it. And then I preached from this one for a while, and then I preached from the cedar one that that Cody built until that was damaged, and now we're preaching from this one again. I'm thankful for something to lay my Bible on. I'm thankful for a chair to sit on. I'm thankful for his word exposed week by week by week in this room. I'm thankful for lives that changed hearing the word exposed in this room. I'm thankful for marriages preserved. I'm thankful for the beginnings of faith that took place in this room. I thought it especially neat last week to consider that we introduced a young man and his wife and son who were part of our youth. He was part of our youth ministry. I'm thankful for people that have grown up here even in the last eight years, and are now husbands and fathers, at least in John's case. I'm thankful for the weddings that took place in here. There were a few. I'm thankful for the testimonies that took place in this room. I'll never forget Keith McCord's testimony as he stood up here and he said, though you slay me, I will trust you. 30-year-old man that died of cancer, but died well. thankful for the many appeals to God for a good conscience through the finished work of Christ via baptism that took place. Roll that screen up. Hit that B for me, Jeff, that B light. We'll get one last look at the River Jordan. (laughs) There it is. It's funny that it really doesn't look like that at all. It's kind of a mud hole, but... Man, I'm telling you, I baptize all three of my kids in that baptism pool. And some of you baptize your children. I baptize some of y'all in that pool. That took place in this room. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the countless notes that were belted out in this room. Some of them on, some of them not. I'm thankful for the symbols that were broken in this room. Metal symbols, Corey Pfeiffer. And I'm thankful for the ones that weren't. I may be more thankful for the ones that weren't. I'm thankful for the truths that we have projected Godward at the top of our lungs in the last eight years in this room. Thankful. I'm thankful that we have had an opportunity week by week to sing newly and to worship newly like it's our first and our last Sunday in this room. I'm thankful for the friends that were made thankful for the hearts that were encouraged and nourished. I'm thankful for a God that was enjoyed 
weekly and often in this room. I'm thankful for a people that were built largely in this room as we gathered around the table. Thankful most of all for what makes sense of all of this. Our Lord and Savior, well-sacrificed, very risen, and especially seated as victor and ruler. As we take the supper together in these next couple of minutes, think about things that you're thankful for that took place in here. We're not overly focused on the physical structure, but God provided it, and it's been a living room for us for the last eight years. It's been sweet. Let's take our supper together. That hopefully Brad and I will never bump into each other again as we're passing out the Lord's Supper. Or me and Steve, which seems like every week down this weird little aisle. So let's take and eat and enjoy Jesus together. Let me just share with you briefly about this scripture memory thing. You'll probably never have a better opportunity to memorize a book of the Bible than over the next few years or however long he has us in Hebrews. Uh, I've kind of planned out uh, November, December, and January, and looks like we'll be in chapter two for a good part of that. So, you know, we're talking about maybe a verse a week, and it's really not hard. I, it, it's, um, you know, sometimes I hear, well, I'm not very good at scripture memory. Well, I'm not either. I mean, I, I have lots of things I can't, I can't remember a grocery list. I mean, I have to make sure if it has three items on it, that's too many for me to remember. I'll forget something. Um, but here's a tool for you. If you have an iPhone, if you don't, man, you need to get with it. But <laughs> I heard somebody's phone during the sermon, and I just had to say, that is when seriously dated phone. I mean, I, my first thought was that's not an iPhone. That where it gets louder each ring, you know? That was funny. I don't know why I really mentioned that, but it just made me laugh on the inside. But if you have an iPhone, you can get an app. This called, uh, it's called Fighterverse, and it's from Desiring God, and it teaches you to memorize a verse. You can plug the verse in there, and it has these tools that you can work through, quizzes, to where you learn the verse as you go. So um, if you're like, man, I just can't do that. Well, yes, you can. It's just, just go ahead and say it's not important to me. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. I, if, it's not, if it's not important to you, then just say it's not important to me. Just going to be honest, because you can, you totally can, and I encourage you, man. It's a sweet, sweet opportunity to memorize a book of the Bible together. Let's pray. God, you have been gracious and good. We're thankful for this, um, thankful for this time we've had together around the table, uh, table of fellowship, the table of the Word, and the table of the Lord's Supper. We are grateful. Uh, we're thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the finished work of Christ as he's seated as ruler beside your right hand. Uh, we love you, Lord. We give this day and this week over to you. Pray for your hand and fingerprints all over the transition. Uh, just thankful for the problem of the work that we have to do this week. Thankful that we have infants and children that need space and that, we, uh, that you've provided. And uh, you remind us and show us that you own the cattle on a thousand hills and that you're seldom early and never late, and we just enjoy you in that. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks.